This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my flagship podcast, Everything Voluntary, where I seek to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. In this episode, we're going to look at a logical fallacy and a cognitive bias. We're going to start with genetic fallacy, which is an extremely common one, and then we'll look at contagion bias. All right, so I'm going to source the information I'm going to give you on genetic fallacy from fallacyandlogic.com, which is actually a site I've never seen before. I think it's uh, relatively new. It's laid out really well. I'll, uh, I'll link to it, of course. Okay, so genetic fallacy. Here's the definition. It's accepting or rejecting a claim based on its origin instead of judging it by its merits. So here's an example. My parents told me that God exists and they wouldn't lie to me. Therefore, God exists. <laughs> That's actually a really, uh, really good example. It's also a really good example of the childishness in which it's used. <laughs> Uh, So it says genetic fallacy is a fallacy of irrelevance in which someone accepts a claim as true or false solely on the basis of its origin. Uh, The fallacy is also known as fallacy of origins and fallacy of virtue. There are a number of different types of genetic fallacies, and they occur particularly often in the discussions on controversial issues and in the political arena, where it is common to attack the source of an argument instead of judging the argument by its quality and current value. I'm I'm probably guilty at this, and I know for sure that people that I've been in arguments with or discussions or debates with online have have certainly been guilty of this. So a usual logical form of this type of argument is person A made a claim, X. Person A is a bad source, therefore X is false. Or, and this goes both ways, person A made a claim X, person A is a good source, therefore claim X must be true. So here's here's a few few more examples just to drive it home. I can't believe anything my doctor says about my health issues. He's overweight himself. Now, that is an example of this fallacy, but if you're somebody who wants to convince other people of good health practices, it's probably a good idea, and I'm not saying this should affect your, the arguments you make. Those should be judged on their own merits, but it's probably a good idea if you look relatively healthy yourself. If you want people to take you seriously, if you want to prevent this fallacy from occurring, then that's probably a good idea. Here's another one. Richard Dawkins, a brilliant evolutionary biologist, said that God doesn't exist. Therefore, God does not exist. Right? Pitting pitting your argument on somebody seemingly reliable in this field, like Richard Dawkins, or pitting your argument on somebody that you know personally, such as your parents, are both examples of the genetic fallacy. Pointing to either source doesn't prove the claim as true or false. 
Here's another one. You shouldn't buy a Volkswagen. It must be a terrible car since it was created by the Nazis. Here's another. You think we should get more women into science? You only say that because you're a woman yourself, so it must be false. Here's a, here's a very timely one. You shouldn't believe anything the media says. It's all fake news. And anybody who, uh, again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get political on here, but this, this is something that's way too obvious. But I don't, I don't believe it was Donald Trump that had invented this phrase, fake, fake news. I believe it was invented by his, uh, probably the, the Clintons. But so many people today, because Donald Trump, who is the current president of the United States, says this, eat it up and believe it. That's a big part of it. Another part of it is there is a lot of fake news out there. And that's been proven time and time again. It's not all fake news. So there's, you know, there's, there's the incorrect bit here. But there's obviously some fake news. And that, that occurs from both sides of the, the political aisle, if you will. All right. Well, that is genetic fallacy. And it's, it's fairly simple to recognize, right? Um, anytime somebody's trying to point at some sort of an authority, a scientist, an expert. Now, I don't think this qualifies as this fallacy. But recently, I was in a debate of sorts with my father about coronavirus lockdowns. And I was making the point that I'm not a scientist. And there's really smart scientists that talk about this, not only epidemiologists and immunologists and virologists, but also economists and political scientists and people that I judge as very qualified in their fields based on their credentials, right? Places they're from, places they work. And they're making these arguments against lockdowns. And that those arguments by themselves are convincing to me. But what helps them be convincing are the folks who are making the arguments. It's not just other schmucks like me making the arguments, but but authorities on the subject, right? Legitimate, real, natural authorities, qualified people. So is that, I mean, they're making the arguments, and I think that the merits of the argument are convincing, but it's also helpful that the people making them are the people that are in the know, the people that are speaking in school, as it were. So if I was if I was merely pointing to them and saying because they say it it must be true that would probably qualify as genetic fallacy. But if I'm saying I like their arguments and I think that that they're really smart people and the arguments are convincing and I'm just sort of trying to feel good I guess about the source of the claims. Right? I don't I don't think that that is genetic fallacy. And of course, you know, just to conclude this story, he, he simply says, well, there are the exact same people from other institutions who say the opposite. <laughs> and he's not wrong. There are. Which is, which is really why you shouldn't use their authority um, as anything more than this is where I got it from, rather than this is why it's true or not. Because, you know, very good point my father make is any politician can find any scientist in any field from any place to say exactly what they want to say. And of course, then I went on to making the point that this is this is why politicizing science is so incredibly dangerous and why it leaves science and becomes religion because of the dogmatism that results from that. That's a that's a different conversation. But that's just something that I I as I'm going through this I'm thinking, you know, I may or may not have committed this fallacy in this way. Um, but who knows. All right, let's go on to 
contagion bias. And as you recall, I use Ralph DeBelli's The Art of Thinking Clearly. This is chapter 54, titled, Would You Wear Hitler's Sweater? Contagion Bias. All right, so as I do, I just sort of read through this and I'll add commentary. It says, following the collapse of the Carolinian Empire in the 9th century, Europe, especially France, descended into anarchy. Counts, commanders, knights, and other local rulers were perpetually embroiled in battles. The ruthless warriors looted farms, raped women, trampled fields, kidnapped pastors, and set convents alight. Both the church and the unarmed farmers were powerless against the noble, savage warmongering. In the 10th century, a French bishop had an idea. He asked the princes and knights to assemble in a field. Meanwhile, priests, bishops, and abbots gathered all the relics they could muster from the area and displayed them there. It was a striking sight. Bones, blood-soaked rags, bricks, and tiles, anything that had ever come in contact with a saint. The bishop, at that time a person of respect, then called upon the nobles in the presence of the relics to renounce unbridled violence and attacks against the unarmed. In order to add weight to his demand, he waved the bloody clothes and holy bones in front of them. The nobles must have had enormous reverence for such symbols. The bishop's unique appeal to their conscience spread throughout Europe, promoting the peace and truce of God. One should never underestimate the fear of saints in the Middle Ages and of saints' relics, says American historian Philip de Leder. As an enlightened person, you can only laugh at this silly superstition. But wait, what if I put it to you this way? Would you put on a freshly laundered sweater that Hitler, Hitler had once worn? Probably not, right? So it seems that you haven't lost all respect for intangible forces either. Essentially, this sweater has nothing to do with Hitler anymore. There isn't a single molecule of Hitler's sweat on it. However, the prospect of putting it on still puts you off. It's more than just a matter of respect. Yes, we want to project a correct image to our fellow humans and to ourselves, but the thought puts but the thought puts us off even when we're alone and when we convince ourselves that touching the sweater does not endorse Hitler in any way. The emotional reaction is difficult to override. Even those who consider themselves quite rational have a hard time completely banishing the belief in mysterious forces, me included. Mysterious powers of this kind can't simply be switched off. Paul Rosen and his research colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania asked test subjects to bring in photos of loved ones. These were pinned to the center of targets and the subjects had to shoot darts at them. Riddling a picture with darts does no harm to the person in it, but nevertheless the subject's hesitation was palpable. They were much less accurate than a control group that had shot at regular targets beforehand. The test subjects behaved as if a mystic force prevented them from hitting the photos. The contagion bias describes how we're incapable of ignoring the connection we feel to certain items, be they from long ago or only indirectly related. A friend was a longtime war correspondent for the French public television channel France 2. Just as passengers on a Caribbean cruise take home souvenirs from each island, a straw hat or a painted coconut, my friend also collected mementos from her adventures. One of her last missions was to Baghdad in 2003. A few hours after American troops stormed Saddam Hussein's government palace, she crept into the private quarters. In the dining room, she spotted six gold-plated wine glasses and promptly commandeered them. When I attended one of her dinner parties in Paris recently, the gilded goblets had pride of place on the dining table. Are these from Galleries Lafayette? One person asked. No, they're from Saddam Hussein, she said candidly. A horrified guest spat his wine back to the glass and began to splutter uncontrollably. I had to contribute. You realize how many molecules you've already shared with Sodom simply by breathing, I asked. About a billion per breath. His cough got even worse. <laughs> All right, so that's contagion bias, and I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to think. I'm digging deep in my mind to try to think if there's any time I've had this reaction to something. 
I don't think this qualifies, but you know, oftentimes when you're going through old stuff that you're you're trying to clean up and get rid of old stuff, throw them away, you'll come across something and you'll remember where it's from and what it used to mean to you, and it'll be difficult to part with it. So I don't I don't think that's the same thing here. I guess I'm just trying to think of instances where there was something of his historical import in a bad way that I didn't want to associate with, or some sort of like the example with the 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 photos that the the photos of their loved ones that they had to throw darts at and they couldn't do it. Well, nothing's coming to me. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I've got a long life ahead of me. I'm sure something will come up. But the contagion bias is when we're incapable of ignoring the connection we feel to certain items, be they from long ago or indirectly related to us. And then, you know, when it happens, we can think back to the ninth and 10th centuries in these these periods of time. And this, of course, still happens today when relics are considered to be something special and to hold some sort of mysterious power or force, either good or bad. And maybe it's not so, I mean, yeah, in a sense it is kind of silly, but in another sense, it's not. All right. I think that's going to do it. I don't really have much more to say about that. <laughs> All right. So just to review, we looked at the genetic fallacy, um, which is a fallacy of irrelevance in which someone accepts a claim as true or false solely on the basis of its origin. And we looked at contagion bias, which describes how we're incapable of ignoring the connection we feel to certain items. Okay, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. 